Hi, Andy. Hi, Victoria. Our next guest, James Nestor, wrote a really interesting book called Breath, and I learned so much from it. I thought I knew a lot about breathing. I teach breathing to my patients. I learned so much from this book. Me too, and it's great to see the reception that this book is getting. It's being very widely read, and I hope it's really it will really raise awareness of the importance of breathing. Well, let's welcome James. James Nestor is a journalist who has written for Outside, Scientific American, The Atlantic, The New York Times, and many more. His recent book, Breath, The New Science of a Lost Art, was released earlier this year and was an instant New York Times bestseller. James' first book, Deep, Free Diving, Renegade Science, and What the Ocean Tells Us About Ourselves, was published in 2016. Welcome, James. Thanks a lot for having me. I'm delighted to have you on the show. You first became interested in breath when you were interviewing divers. I'd love to know, what did you learn that made you want to investigate this topic more deeply? I had been learning a whole bunch of things about breathing over several years. I had been suffering from a number of respiratory problems that no one could seem to help me with. And it wasn't really until I went to go in bed with freedivers as part of a reporting assignment for Outside Magazine that I learned the true potential of where breathing could take us. Now, these are people who have trained themselves to hold their breath for six, seven, eight minutes at a time and dive down to depths of 300, 400 feet, no fins know anything. And when I came back and reported this to, to my mom, she said, this is totally impossible. I heard, I've heard the same thing from, <laughs> from numerous people since then, uh, even though there's video of it, uh, you know, but uh, it allowed me to understand that there was still so much we didn't know about the human body, its potential and where breathing could take us. And I wondered what else breathing could do for us on the terrestrial plane. My job as a journalist is to go into this field and and, and report objectively on what, what's happening. So I had never written this deeply about medicine before. And let me tell you, it was a very steep learning curve, learning about the electron transport chain and oxyhemoglobin disassociation curve. I've had zero experience with that. Luckily, my father-in-law is a pulmonologist. And my brother-in-law is an ER doc. So they helped me out along the way. But I, I think that the thing with, with breathing and science is there, there is a huge foundation of science showing how breathing benefits the mind, how it benefits the body, how it can help increase lifespan. It's just these studies have been locked away in these academic journals with these 30-word titles for so long that they haven't made it out to the general public. And so I spent years and years in medical libraries reading through all of these articles and trying to piece together this, this science for, for the general population. But there's still so many people researching this. It's just, it seems like that research is just going by the wayside as people are looking for a quicker fix. You know, they're looking for a pill or a powder. Yeah, Andy, you've been writing and teaching people how to breathe better for so many years. And I know that you sometimes talk about your disappointment that there's not more science and that there's not more uh, instruction. I uh, started practicing yoga when I was 28, and I became very interested in pranayama. And that was my first exposure to uh, information, which was mostly coming from India, about the potential of breath, the change, the function of the body and the mind. Uh, so I began exploring that on my own. I found nothing in clinical medicine that paid any attention to breath. 
And then in the 1980s, I, I, late 70s, 80s, I had the good fortune to ha- find a mentor, uh, an elderly osteopathic physician, Dr. Robert Fulford, who I think was the greatest healer I've ever met. Uh, he had come to Tucson to retire uh, in his early 80s, and, but he couldn't retire because he was in such demand. And he placed great emphasis on breathing. He said that was the master function of the body. And he felt that restrictions in breathing, which could come about from birth trauma or physical trauma or possibly emotional trauma, uh, were the root cause of many chronic ailments. And his manipulative treatment was designed to free up breathing. And often one treatment would produce remarkable changes. I, I saw him end recurrent ear infections in kids with just one section of manipulation that improved their breathing, for example. So that really inspired me to look further into the potential of breath and to experiment with it myself. And over the years, until really quite recently, I have found so few people in clinical medicine that paid attention to this or made use of it. And to me, you know, it's, it's, it's an example of the power of integrative medicine to find something that's not on the radar of conventional medicine that is completely cost-effective, it's free, uh, uses no equipment, is extremely time-efficient, and has this remarkable potential to change many conditions in the body, both physical and emotional, as uh, James you know, documents in his book. Yeah, I'd love at the end for us to point people to some of the useful resources out there because one of the wonderful things about integrative medicine is many of the uh, things that we point people to are indeed free and uh, don't require special equipment and can be widely used. And I think especially now with uh, the wide availability of the internet and of smartphones, uh, these tools are just at our fingertips. And reading your book, which I, I am absolutely pleased to see that out there and, and finding such a wide readership, you know, must, m- many of the main points are very familiar to me, such as increasing the depth of breathing, increasing uh, the depth of exhalation, particularly of slowing the breath. But one idea that you present was very new to me, and that is your take on carbon dioxide. I mean, my thought was always that it's desirable to get rid of carbon dioxide as much as possible. And, you know, that was one of the reasons I thought it was useful to increase exhalation. But you have a very different idea about carbon dioxide's function in the body. Well, I learned about this from research that was published more than 100 years ago by Yandel Henderson at Yale, who found that without proper amounts of carbon dioxide, oxygen had a really hard time doing what it was supposed to do which was to provide energy to hungry cells. So this had been uh, going on, this research had been going on for decades and decades. And then in the 50s and 60s, people started experimenting with giving people who had chronic anxiety and even chronic asthma uh, hits of carbon dioxide, uh, which sounds crazy because we assume that carbon dioxide is a waste gas. And, you know, there's, there's a reason the climate is changing and the ocean is acidifying because there's too much CO2 in the atmosphere. If you don't agree with that, then, then you're wrong because the science is very clear. But, but the body needs a balance of CO2 and oxygen to operate efficiently. So with CO2 therapies right now, they have found that populations with anxiety, with panic, with asthma, with other fear-based disorders, they traditionally have very low CO2 in their entitled breath. And so the theory right now, and there's actually a, a decent amount of research going on in this area, 
is that by increasing the tolerance for CO2, these people can become more comfortable and they can breathe more slowly and they can get that balance of CO2 and O2 in their bodies. So Justin Feinstein at the Laureate Institute of Brain Research has been doing this therapy that has been around for over 100 years where he's given people with chronic anxiety a hit of CO2. And it hasn't been published yet. The data hasn't, but I've heard from him and it's working incredibly well. The one experience that I've I've had that, that connects with that is I remember, I think this was when I was an intern in San Francisco, learning a trick, which I practiced a number of times on patients that came in with panic attacks who were hyperventilating. Uh, you had them breathe in and out of a paper bag, and this would calm them down and slow their breathing, and that was increasing their intake of CO2. That's exactly right. And they've suggested you're you're a qualified, you're a doctor, you can do this. But they suggest that that everyone not do this because some people have confused panic attacks with heart attacks. And they've given people with heart attacks paper bags, which is a big problem. So a safer way of doing this, and this is what Alicia Moret has been doing at Southern Methodist University for, for years and years, is taking control of your breath, becoming aware of it, and slowing your breath down. And, and using these two bags in your chest right here, your lungs, to slow your breath and, and take control and naturally increase that CO2. And by doing this, instead of breathing more, you can calm yourself down. I mean, she's shown 10 years ago, she had an NIH study showing this was incredibly effective for people with panic and asthma. And the other idea that I was struck by in your book was you, you uh, caution people not to overbreathe and say that it's good to learn how to breathe less. Can you expound on that? Sure. A lot of us think that by breathing more, we're bringing more oxygen to our body. But the opposite is often true. And you can test this right now. If you take 20 big breaths, or 30 big breaths, or 40 big breaths, maybe you'll feel some tingling at the ends of your fingers, you'll get lightheaded. This is not from an increase of oxygen to these areas. This is from a decrease of circulation. So by breathing over your metabolic needs, you are causing this vasoconstriction in these areas. What you want to be doing is breathing in line with your metabolic needs, which for the vast majority of us means breathing less. And by breathing less, you get more oxygen. When we breathe too many breaths per minute, we take in air and it enters into our mouth and our throat and the upper regions of our chest and the bronchi, but it doesn't really make it to all those, those lungs where it can participate in gas exchange. So they've found, they've looked at percentages, and if you breathe about 18 to 20 times a minute, you use about 50% of your breath. So that is very inefficient. If you breathe at a rate of six times a minute, the same amount, six liters, you use 85% of that breath. So who doesn't want a 35% increase in efficiency 20,000 times a day? I mean, obviously you're gonna benefit from that. So in addition to the speed and the depth, you also point to how many people are mouth breathers and the problems with being a mouth breather. And the data that you shared and the experience of taping the mouth in order to force yourself to become a nose breather was really fascinating. Uh, can you talk about how we got into this mess that so many people have become mouth breathers? <laughs> Well, a lot of us think that poor breathing habits are caused by environmental inputs or maybe anxiety, mental problems, but a lot of it is anatomical. And this sounded crazy when I first learned about it, but I met some biological anthropologists and they showed me ancient skulls and all of these ancient skulls had perfectly straight teeth. 
these very pronathic faces, these wide nasal apertures. And if you look at modern skulls, uh, the vast majority of us, some 90% have sort of some sort of malocclusion or crookedness in our jaw, deformation, crooked teeth. So the reason we have crooked teeth is our mouths have grown so small and a small mouth makes for a smaller airway. So this is one of the reasons why so many of us are suffering from restricted breathing, from sleep apnea, from snoring and other respiratory problems. And, and again, this seems extraordinary, but all you have to do is look at ancient skulls and then all you have to do is look in the mirror and you could see what has happened to our skulls over the past 300, 400 years. And learning about those skulls took you underground to an ancient burial site. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you can only get so far in labs. Uh, you know, I was able to touch a few skulls uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, the Archaeology and Anthropology Museum. They have hundreds and hundreds of ancient skulls. And let me tell you, it was pretty creepy standing in these rooms surrounded by these skulls, and they're all smiling back with perfectly straight teeth. You know, so so what have we lost? What have we done wrong? So I had an opportunity to go see some other skulls that weren't behind protective glass in the catacombs of Paris. A lot of people don't realize that underneath the streets of Paris, about 60 feet underneath there, is 170 miles of quarries. And they didn't know where to put all the skeletons. So there are 6 million skeletons down there below the streets of Paris. And I've heard the rumor is that you can find certain people who know their way around there, who can show you these enormous ossuaries of, of skulls from a thousand years old to 400 years old, just, just all surrounding these ancient caves. So the, I had the opportunity to do that and I, and I did it. So the, the change in our anatomy has occurred in a relatively short amount of time. And um, you point to things like the food we chew is awfully soft, and that's one of the reasons why we don't develop as good a jaw. Or maybe our mothers didn't, and fathers didn't teach us to close our mouths. You know, um, the way some cultures do, they'll actually close the baby's lips so that the baby learns through childhood to breathe more effectively to breathe through their nose. There's a number of reasons why our mouths have grown so small and our oral posture has gotten so poor and, and why 25 to 50% of the population now habitually breathes through its mouth. It's, it's because our, you know, our faces have been formed in early life to, to be open like this. If you constantly walk around with your mouth open, you will change the skeletature of your face. You will change your, your profile. This is so well known that it's called adenoid face because so many kids have it. So they found that, that chewing stress is one of the main culprits, uh, specifically the lack of chewing stress. And chewing starts at birth. They, they know that kids who have been breastfed versus those who have been bottle fed um, those who are breastfed will have lower incidence of snoring and sleep apnea later on in life. And if you look at, at brothers and sisters who have been breastfed versus bottle fed, they have different teeth. Uh, that, that is more anecdotal. No one's done a huge study of that, but they have done studies looking at breathing uh, later on in life. So after that, if you are eating soft, mushy, processed food, you don't get any masticatory stress. And without that stress, you aren't going to be able to develop the proper bones, the proper musculature. And, and we've known this for, for 30, 40 years. And yet still you go to the NIH, and, and at least I did, and I looked up the causes of crooked teeth and they said it was hereditary. That doesn't make too much sense if our ancestors 300 years ago all had perfectly straight teeth. So it brings into question a whole, whole bunch of things. Andy, you regularly teach 
fellows in our program how to be breathing teachers on their own. And you teach two different breathing techniques. One's a more stimulating breath called the bellows breath. And the other is the more relaxing breath called often the four, seven, eight breath. Why'd you pick those two? And what do well, you hope that people gain? I first teach people to pay attention to the breath yes. and the importance of keeping your attention on your breath. That's a very safe place to have it. Uh, secondly, I teach people to breathe through the nose, uh, to breathe diaphragmatically. Uh, to slow breathing, uh, to increase exhalation. Those are basic principles that I teach. And then I, just as examples of the power of breath to change physiology, I have people experiment with those two, the breath of fire or bellows breath, rapid in and out breathing through the nose, which is stimulating. It also is warming. It warms you up. It's muscular exertion. And I find, you know, I, I experience energy in especially in my extremities when i do that i experience that as a kind of tingling it's not the tingling of hyperventilation it's it's different uh, it's in my forearms and hands and i think that's chi energy i think that's prana or chi and i think that that's an, that's how you can use breath to increase the flow of that subtle energy and then i teach everyone that i meet that 478 relaxing breath which i learned from dr fulford and that is specifically a way to change autonomic nervous tone and increase parasympathetic activity, which most of us need to do because most people are in sympathetic overdrive, uh, you know, in fight or flight response. And we want to activate the relaxation response. And that's a very powerful way to do that. And I, I have done that with large groups of people. I think the largest I did it with was a group of 7,000 physicians at the annual uh, meeting at the American Academy of Family Practice. And it was amazing to have an audience of 7,000 doing that together. It's very powerful. And as you know, a few years ago, I was invited by the NSA to come to their headquarters and give them a lecture on stress. And uh, this was an audience of 1,000 that was televised to various remote sites. And it was very satisfying to have that group doing that, uh, that breath. And I always remind people after I do that, that the literal meaning of the word conspiracy is to breathe together. <laughs> and that I tell people that we are engaging in a conspiracy for better health. So th that's a very simple technique. I was pleased to see that James referenced that at the end of his book. It's just a very simple, powerful way to uh, change the balance of function in the autonomic nervous system. I think one of the great things about all of these breathing methods is we can measure them. We can measure what happens to the brain. We can measure what happens to the body. So if people are apprehensive, and, and I certainly was, you know, I hooked myself up with various sensors over various years at various institutions yeah. from U UCSF to Stanford to all over the place. And you can see literally within a few seconds what happens to your body when you change your breathing. So luckily, a lot of these uh, instruments are pretty cheap. You can get a pulse oximeter. You can get a heart rate variability monitor. So many people have these. And you can breathe differently and, and watch this transformation that occurs. And if you can elicit that transformation, that health pivot into the parasympathetic state, then imagine after just doing that for a couple of minutes, what will happen after a couple of days or a couple of weeks? It, it can transform you. And I've seen this time and time again and talked to experts in the field who have been working for decades. But this is so that. underutilized in clinical medicine. And my impression is that most doctors just don't take it seriously. And most researchers, because it's too simple. You know, how could anything that doesn't involve a drug or a device possibly affect physiology. And, and it's getting over that obstacle uh, that I think keeps this from being more put to practical use. 
Body of Wonder is produced by the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona. Internationally recognized for innovative health and wellness programs, evidence-based research, and clinical standards. During this unprecedented time managing the physical and emotional challenges of the coronavirus, the Andrew Weil Center is here to support you. The center offers listeners a wide range of free resources to live and maintain a healthy lifestyle, including online learning, meditations, and short videos. To find out more, go to azcim.org slash podcast. That's azcim.org slash podcast. So you mentioned conspiracy earlier. You're both evangelists for breath. How do we get it out there so that every child learns this? Uh, Every adult, perhaps with asthma, is taught that they actually do have a degree of control over their breathing so that they can change the circumstances. Well, I think these studies have been done for, in the 1960s, at the Papworth Hospital in England, they had shown that slower breathing had an incredible beneficial effect for people with asthma. But but again, these and there were a few studies, and same thing with Buteco. There are a few dozen studies on this. But doctors, from from what I've heard from the doctors in my family, they just don't have time. When, it, when they're seeing 20 patients in an hour, they can't sit them down and say, you have asthma, I'm going to show you some slow breathing techniques, uh, you know, over the next hour and a half. So, I think that it's a systemic problem. I think doctors really want to help, at least the ones I've talked to, but they just aren't able to. So there are other ways that people can get information through this podcast. And and I think that that podcasting has has really opened up so many doors for people to get real information. There's a lot of garbage out there too, but but you know, look look at who the host is, look at where the references are at the end of the podcast and and you can really find ways of getting information that I, I won't say has been buried but but has been ignored for so long. You know, I can teach this to patients in 5 minutes. You know, I can sit with a patient and in 5 minutes explain the basics and do the 478 breath with them mm-hmm. and I get all of the fellows that come through our program to learn how to do this and do it with patients. It doesn't take a lot of time. Incredible. And and one one thing I want to mention, when when I say they don't have the capacity to teach someone, uh, they just don't have the time to do this. Some of these people, like with asthma, Buteco, Pathwork, takes many different sessions over many weeks. And these people learn something, they say it feels good, and then then they forget about it. So that's what I was talking about, not not breathing awareness. So I I hope I didn't get that wrong. No, I think it almost makes me think that we probably need to have specific group of people who are breathing coaches, the way we have health coaches for other areas. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I think it's a long time coming. You know, yeah. they, they call them yoga teachers right. in some parts of the world. But yeah, yeah. you mentioned one of your relatives is an emergency doc. I think that's one of the most effective places. And the reality is, is people often spend a lot of time waiting in an emergency room. So we need to have them watch the YouTube that's been watched, I think, by 4 million people of Dr. Wild teaching 478, or to go to your website uh, where you point people to uh, five or six other breathing exercises that range in difficulty. Some of them are super simple. And some of them, for example, the Wim Hof method uh, are much more complex. (laughs) Let me ask you about one of the simple ones. You advise people to practice uh, a breath of breathing in uh, to a uh, count of five seconds and then out for five seconds and to do as many breaths like this as you can. Uh, Do you want to tell us about how to do that? I've been practicing that since I read, read the book. 
This is called coherent breathing, and I think it really be, be, people became aware of it about 20 years ago when some Italian researchers were recording what happened to people's bodies and brains when they recited different prayers. So from the, the Ave Maria, the Catholic prayer cycle of the rosary, or Om Mani Padmi Ham, the famous Buddhist mantra, these prayers and so dozens and dozens of others, Om Satanama, they all seem to, to circle around the same respiratory rate, about an inhale of about five to six seconds, exhale about five to six seconds, which is about five to six breaths per minute. And they found that when people breathe this way, you could pray if you wanted to, but you didn't need to. You just needed to breathe in this way. You could increase oxygenation to your brain. Your heart rate would slow down. Your blood pressure would decrease. And the systems of the body would enter the state of coherence where everything was working at peak efficiency. So Dr. Richard Brown at Columbia has been using this for, for decades for his patients with depression and anxiety. And all it's so simple that people think there's no way this is going to work. Um, you know, it's very unsexy, unglamorous. It is an inhale of about five to six seconds. Don't worry if you're half a second off. The point is to relax. And an exhale for that same amount. And throughout the day, if you find yourself getting increasingly stressed, you can extend your exhale. So you can inhale to a count of about four and extend your exhales to a count of about six. When you do this, you can place your hand over your heart. And every time you exhale, your heart rate is going to be going down because that is eliciting more of a parasympathetic response. So these are just little tools you can have in your breathing toolbox because we carry our breath around with us all day long. So you can take advantage of this, whether you're on Zoom calls or whether you're answering email or watching Tiger King or whatever you're doing nowadays. So that's a great, simple practice. And, and I have to say, I'm, I'm very moved that all of these different prayers elicit the same breathing response. That seems important. I'd also love for you to touch on one of the more complex practices you did. And I'll let you pick which one you think was uh, maybe the most profound for you. I think that the Wim Hof method... We call it the Wim Hof method. I don't know why, because this has been around for thousands, thousands <laughs> yeah. of years. And Wim's uh -huh. a great guy, and he's brought breathing awareness to hundreds of thousands of people. And I talk to him mm -hmm. quite often. But uh, that method is is so confounding to people because you're not supposed to overbreathe, right? It, it has all the problems that that we just addressed earlier. And yet, when you consciously overbreathe for a certain amount of time, it can have so many benefits. And we know this in pranayama, sudarshan and Kriya, these practices that have you for about 20 minutes go and you're really working yourself out. And the point of these is to elicit that sympathetic stress so that you can get in better control of it. Most of us have this low-grade stress throughout the day that is just eating away at us. But if we were to focus this stress at one period of time, we can spend the rest of the day relaxing. And I've found that that method, and I practiced that a version of that method, uh, this didn't make it into the book, at the <laughs> UCSF Hypoxia Center. And they, they put catheters on and took my blood before and after and laid me out on a gurney. And they were so completely freaked out by what happened to my body during it. They, you know, th this was like, like ER level, uh, red alert, uh, stuff that, that they were seeing happening in my body, but I felt perfectly fine because I was doing this consciously. So talking to people who have had autoimmune problems for 20, 30 years, talking with people who have had anxiety problems, hypertension, on and on, they've been able to blunt the symptoms of those problems and in some miraculous cases actually heal themselves completely, no more medications at all, by adopting 
this breathing practice. And I know this seems impossible, but there are studies in nature that, that show that uh, the human body, when we are able to take control of our breathing, we can take control of our autonomic nervous system. We can take control of some aspects of our immune function. And that's exactly what these people are doing. You know, uh, breath is one of those unique physiological systems that can be completely involuntary, which is maybe why health professionals have thought it's not important because you don't have to uh, remind yourself to breathe. You just breathe. And yet we can also do it in all of these diverse ways voluntarily. And it is the, the potential, therefore, to train or maybe retrain your autonomic nervous system. It's certainly the the quieting side, the parasympathetic nervous system, I think has been underutilized. Uh, a few people, Dr. Weil amongst them, have been teaching people this, but broadly, it's not in our repertoire as physicians. Yeah, and I can't tell you how many, I almost didn't write this book because I interviewed about six to seven doctors at the beginning of it who said, told me, how we breathe does not matter. These, these were professors at, at top universities. I won't name them. They said, how you breathe will have zero effect on your asthma, will have zero effect on anxiety um, because it's unconscious. And, and so I gave up on this book for, for six months till I started talking to other people who had different research and had a different take on this. But I, I think that the point is not to walk around with, with a notepad or an app or to constantly be obsessing over your breathing. What you want to do is acclimate your body to what healthy breathing is and allow it to become a habit so that we don't have to think about it, so that we're habitually breathing through our noses, we're habitually breathing slowly, we're calming ourselves down. Um, you know, writing a book about breath makes you a complete neurotic about your breathing, <laughs> and uh, that's not a good thing. I'm, luckily, a lot of these things have become habit for me at this point. Andy, what do you think in terms of the shift in consciousness that when you learn that you can stress the body, change your blood pH, do things that many people would say are not doable, hold your breath for long periods of time, how that shifts your sense of self? You know, the body is incredible. And uh, I have always tried to encourage other people to have greater confidence in the body's ability to maintain itself, extend itself, do things that, you know, we don't think are usual or possible. Uh, I think the human body is just remarkable. And uh, there probably are many potentials out there that are yet untapped. And I think in terms of applications in clinical medicine, uh, there's probably nothing that is out of reach of change through change in breath. You know, one thing I remember, for example, that uh, Dr. Fulford taught was that scoliosis, which we think of as purely a mechanical problem, that the root cause of that was unequal breathing on the left and right side. And this often started in infancy. And if, if one half of the chest expanded greater than the other half, this is what led to the initial curvature of the spine that then increased over time. I mean, who would have ever thought, thought about that? That could be modified, maybe even corrected by changing breathing patterns. And I suspect that, as I say, there's really nothing that's out of bounds uh, in terms of what breath can influence. I did along those lines, uh, some research that, that I found that just blew me away was about 100 years ago when a German lady had scoliosis when she was a teenager and was given a brace in bed and told 
there's there's your life. And she learned to breathe in ways and she she straightened her spine with breathing with something called orthopedic breathing. This sounds impossible, sure. <laughs> but then she went and taught it to thousands and thousands of women for, for whom hospitals had totally given up on. And I didn't believe this till I saw the pictures, till I saw the scientific studies, until I learned that after she was derided for 40 years, uh, the German medical establishment tried to stop her from doing this for 40 years. At the end of her life, she was awarded a medal for her contributions in medicine by the German government. <laughs> Sometimes this stuff takes a long, long time to sink in. I mean, look at look at nutrition. We've known for 100 years that processed, modern, industrialized food is garbage. I mean, there's nutritionists. I found studies uh, showing people saying this, and it took us 100 years to, to, to really get clued into that. So... You know, I guess you just got to be patient. I don't know. Well, I'm just glad it wasn't a posthumous award. <laughs> yeah, those are the worst, aren't they? <laughs> well, James, I think you've done a great deal to raise awareness of all this. And uh, so, as I said, I'm very pleased to see the book out there and getting the reception it is. I think that's going to help speed the change. And and thanks for your contributions. You know, I've I've been reading up on all all your stuff and practicing your methods, and I've felt in, in my own body uh, significant changes from just breathing those simple methods. One last question for each of you. The same question. Sometimes people say when they come in to see us that they just can't get a deep breath. Often they're anxious, but they can't get a deep breath. Give a simple tip for those folks. I would say uh, baby steps. Don't go all the way. Don't go from zero to 10. Um, there's some people who have chronic anxieties, chronic asthma. They go to Wim Hof method and they really lose it. I think that's the worst thing they can do. I would start by breathing in at a rate of about three seconds in and three seconds out and get comfortable with that and then go to four and then make it up to six. There's no rush to this. And especially with these people who have had these bad habits for decades and decades, whose CO2 tolerance is extremely low, it's going to take a long time. And I think to be, to be patient with it and, and know that your body has this miraculous way of healing itself, if you allow it to. Uh, very sensible. I have encountered a few patients who say they become more anxious when they try to do the four, seven, eight breaths. So I tell them, well, don't worry about it. You know, just do little, little, a bit of it at a time and uh, pieces of it and, and wait and be patient and it'll happen. Thank you. The other tip I've heard is hum. That humming uh, can sometimes be helpful. Releases well, 15, 15 times the amount of nitric oxide, uh, just humming. So that, that's a great trick, especially now knowing that nitric oxide interacts directly with viruses and other pathogens. James, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for your wonderful book. I do hope that it reaches many and causes a revolution around our ideas about breath and breathing. Thank you very much for having me. Listeners, this is Dr. Victoria Mazes. We would love for you to send us your questions for Andy, myself, or for our guests. You can call us and leave a voicemail by dialing 520-621-3950. Again, 520-621-3950. Or you can submit a question by going to our website, azcim.org slash podcast. Again, azcim.org slash podcast. We will review your questions and try to answer as many as possible on our programs. 
Learn more about topics featured on the Body of Wonder podcast and how to apply them to your everyday health with My Wellness Coach, a free mobile app from the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine. Download today at mywellnesscoach.arizona.edu. That's mywellnesscoach.arizona.edu.